On today's episode of A Locked Up With History, we're heading back to the earlier days of Melbourne and the murder of Mary Lucas. Why did her husband Luke pick up an iron bar and murder her in cold blood? Stay tuned. Warning. This podcast contains discussions of some potentially distressing topics. Listeners, please be advised. With us for true and tall tales unsurpassed, with stories from Victoria's dark colonial past. Spirits, executions, ghosts, murders, and ghouls. These are the stories they don't teach you at school. All these twisted tales of mystique and mystery coming to you now on Locked Up with History. everyone and welcome back to Locked Up With History episode 11. My name is Deb Robinson and on today's episode we're going to explore the story of Luke and Mary Lucas whose lives in the Little Burke Street area both came to a rather abrupt end in November 1854. One with her brains dashed out by her husband on the fireplace and the other at the end of a noose. But first, let's have a look at who Luke and Mary were and how they ended up in the Little Burke Street area and a part of the red light district of Melbourne. Now, Luke Lucas was the son of Benjamin Lucas and his wife Mary Holmwood in Surrey, born around 1814. He had at least one brother, William, and another sister, Mary, who also both came out to Australia. They lived for a long time in South Street in St Giles and Camberwell, where Benjamin worked as a shoemaker and Luke followed in his father's footsteps. The area they lived was one of the lower class areas with overcrowded housing and poor conditions and entire families living in one room. Now we know from the records that Luke lived in the same street, if not the same house as his parents. But unfortunately, shoemaking was not a profitable career with many shoemakers barely able to make a living. And this might explain some of Luke's choices later in life to earn a better living. Now, Luke met Marianne Moore and they had their first child together named Anne, being born on the 20th of September, 1842. Alice Mary followed, born in January 1844, but unfortunately she would die at 18 months old, being buried at St Giles in October 1845. The next child, a son, their firstborn son, Edward Charles was born in April 1846, but he only lived for two weeks before joining his sister in the cemetery at St Giles. It was a very hard existence for the young family. Now, at this stage, nothing is known of Mary's early life, apart from the fact she was born in England around 1817. Luke and Mary eventually married in January 1847 in Camberwell, Surrey, with their next son, Benjamin, born just two months afterwards on the 26th of March the same year. Their daughter Anne was baptised at seven years of age on the 11th of February 1849 and another daughter Carolyn Mary baptised on the 5th of May 1849 just before the family left for Australia. Now Luke, Mary and the children Anne, Benjamin and Carolyn left Plymouth for Adelaide aboard the Ascendant on the 18th of August 1849. New beginnings in a new country must have been very appealing for the young family. 
The Lucases arrived in Port Adelaide on the 21st of November 1849 as steerage passengers, being listed as Luke 26, a shoemaker, Mary 28, Anne 6, Benjamin 3, and Caroline as an infant. Within six months, though, the young Caroline had passed away in April 1850 while the family were living in Horton Street in Adelaide. Now, I haven't been able to find any indication that Luke and Mary were involved in prostitution before they came to Australia, but it certainly would not surprise me. But from June 1850, both Luke and Mary begin to appear in the papers of the day, fronting courts for various misdemeanours such as drunkenness, being drunk in the street, and for Luke, beating Mary. Now, some of these offences took place in Light Square in Adelaide that had been named for the founder of Adelaide, Colonel William Light. The western side of the city was then known for its rapid residential development and subdivisions which made housing more affordable for the lower classes and the undesirables, such as prostitutes. Now, while this was going on, we also have another daughter called Harriet that was born in Adelaide on the 21st of February 1851. Just two months later, Mary was charged for assaulting Mrs Mack in Rosina Street whilst in the company of Anne Short and Mary Nisbet, well-known prostitutes. It was said that the altercation was over an old grudge that Mary had for Mrs Mack. Is this perhaps a clue that Mary was indeed a prostitute herself at some point in the past? Now, the relationship between Luke and Mary was beginning to disintegrate, with Luke being charged in July 1851 with threatening his wife. Luke had come home drunk and told Mary that she should not enter the house or she would be killed. He sent Anne out with baby Harriet and they had to walk the streets until a police constable took pity on them and allowed Mary and the children to stay at the police station overnight. Mary would tell the police that she was afraid for her life. When it went to court, Luke's defence was that it was Mary's fault and she tantalised him when he was drunk. The judge didn't take too kindly to Luke's explanation, asking was that the only excuse he could muster for the brutality he had furnished on Mary by turning her out on the streets. Luke was fined two pounds and ten shillings for good behaviour. In February 1852, both Luke and Mary were charged with keeping a house of ill repute near Light Square on Morfitt Street in Adelaide. Now, by December 1852, the Lucases were once again before the courts, but this time they were in Melbourne but obviously following the same path on the wrong side of the law, with Luke being changed as the keeper of a house of ill fame, along with Mary Martin and Margaret Gilmore, who were charged with being prostitutes. The charges caused a little bit of an uproar as the Lucases had been paying hush money, or as Luke referred to it, a licence, to Constables Furlong and Murray in the form of five shillings per week, along with sundry gold nuggets, for them to turn a blind eye to the goings-on in the house near Queen Street. This was increased to 10 shillings per week after they were told they needed to pay more or leave the house. It was rumoured that Chief Constable Bloomfield turned a blind eye to the dens of infamy on receipt of funds that were donated to various charities. So I can imagine that Luke was quite upset to be caught up in the arrests. In the end, Mary had to appear before the magistrates as Luke testified he was in bodily fear Harm would be done to him if he made the matter known and would be avenged even to the diggings. In the end, it was decided that there was not enough evidence and the charges were dismissed, although not before Mr Hill, one of the presiding magistrates, commented that the statement of a person of Lucas's reputed character should not be allowed against an officer of the force. On the 7th of May 1853, another daughter named Caroline Phoebe was born to the couple. 
but unfortunately she too would die aged just 13 months in June 1854. Now in August 1854, Luke was charged again with drunkenness and ill-using his children at the Swanson Street station. He was remanded until September 2 when the charges were dismissed after Mary refused to appear against him. The magistrate warned Luke that his character was well known and if he was brought again before the bench, they would deal with him under the Vagrant Act. However, the next time that Luke Lucas appeared in court, it would be for the murder of his wife, Mary. If you'd like to visit some of the places featured on Locked Up With History, book in a tour with Twisted History. For the full range of tours and to book, visit twistedhistory.net.au. Now, in November 1854, Luke, Mary and their children were living in a right-of-way off Little Burke Street East near Queen Street and the government offices in Melbourne. Now, Luke had been before the police court several times by this stage and served more than one term of imprisonment. It was also reported that Mary had a habit of overindulging in alcohol as well. Now, at the time of the murder, Anne was aged 12 and Benjamin, who was also known as Billy in the papers, was eight years old and they were living in a boarding house next to the Queen Theatre Royal, not far from their parents' brothel. The younger sister, Harriet, who was only four years old, was being cared for in a house in Burke Street, again, whose reputation was not the best. The house the Lucases were living in had three rooms. Two were used as bedrooms and the third as a common area. Mary and Luke occupied the front room and the children, along with a boarder, Eliza Griffin, were in the back room. On the morning of the 7th of November, 1854, Luke was tipsy when Mary came in around 8am and they breakfast together with Eliza and another couple, the Thorpes, who had stayed the previous night. Everything seemed quite amicable. Mary left to get some dinner and brought in some meat and potatoes, which Eliza prepared and took to the bakehouse. Not long after, Luke and Mary began arguing, with him accusing Mary of cohabitating with another man and being out all night the night before. Mary was actually home at 8.30pm. As the argument escalated, Mary went next door to the home of Margaret Matthews between 10 and 11am, seeking protection from Luke. Margaret had only known the couple for a fortnight, but let Mary in as she knew that Mary was afraid of Luke when he was in one of his tempers. Luke followed her quickly and tried to coerce Mary back into their own house, saying it is fitter for you to be in your own house than anybody else's. Mary replied that if she went, Luke would beat her. But eventually Mary gave in and the repair returned to their own house. Perhaps the worst decision Mary ever made. When they entered, Luke immediately put the children outside and locked the door. Eliza was in her room when she heard the couple return and continued to argue, with Luke saying, you have been out all night, you can go from where you've been. She then heard Mary screech, saying, you have killed me, you have killed me. Eliza entered the front room to see Luke standing over Mary holding an iron bar. Mary was laying face down in front of the fire in a pool of blood with a large gash to the back of her head. Eliza told Luke not to murder his wife as it was not long since he was out of trouble. But the look he gave her made Eliza hurriedly return to her room and lock the door. It was less than five minutes later when Luke reopened his door, leaning nonchalantly in the doorway. He invited John Lewis, who lived nearby and who had been alerted by the screams of women, to see my drunken wife. Police were alerted by a woman informing them that a man who was beating his wife and Constable John Martin arrived and took Luke Lucas into custody. He was taken to the Swanson Street Watch House. 
Dr. Edward Parker had been called to attend to Mary, but she died from her injuries within minutes of his arrival. The whole event had taken less than 15 minutes. You're listening to Locked Up With History. Now, the inquest was held on the following day at 11am before the acting coroner, Richard Yule, at the St John's Tavern near the corner of Queen and Burke Streets. Dr Parker testified he was called to see Mary at 11.30am where he found her lying on her right side on the floor near the fireplace. There was a large pool of dark red blood on the floor at the side of her head. Dr Parker put his fingers into the three-inch wound and discovered that the skull was extensively fractured, although her brain was not exposed. I really hope Mary was already dead before that happened. Mary died about four minutes after Dr Parker's arrival. She was just 37 years old. There were several people present at the time and when Dr Parker asked what had happened, Luke replied, This is the way to serve women who stop out drinking till half past ten in the morning. Luke appeared perfectly calm and conscious of his actions. Dr Parker performed the post-mortem examination and found cause of death was a fractured skull and hemorrhage caused by ruptured blood vessels on the surface of the brain caused by external violence. Margaret Matthews described how Mary had come to her house trying to escape Luke and she found Mary to be a sober and industrious woman. Margaret heard Mary scream, I'm murdered, followed by dead silence. Luke appeared again in the doorway as if nothing had happened. Eliza Griffin described hearing a slight quarrel and then hearing Mary scream, murder. On going into the room, she saw Luke with the iron bar and said, Mr Lucas, don't strike her again, you've already killed her. When asked by Lucas as to whether Mary had been out all night, Eliza replied that she had come to speak the truth. Lucas smiled derisively, but Eliza confirmed to the jury that the couple had shared a bed the night before the murder. John Lewis testified that hearing the cry of murder, he'd left his house. He saw Luke leaning in the doorway where he invited Lewis in to see Mary bleeding on the floor. When Lewis pointed out to Luke that he had knocked her brains out, Luke became silent. He was not quite sober at the time. John Lewis testified hearing the cry of murder and left his house. He saw Luke leaning in the doorway where he invited Lewis in to see Mary bleeding on the floor. When Lewis pointed out to Luke that he had knocked her brains out, Luke became silent. He was not quite sober at the time. Lucas had told Lewis that he'd burned his hand when picking up the iron bar. This obviously had infuriated him even more. Constable John Martin testified responding to a call for a man beating his wife and taking Lucas into custody. His superior requested further information before taking Luke into proper custody and on his return to the Lucas home found that Mary had died of her injuries. Lucas was then charged and held on murder. Sergeant James Elders testified that attending the Lucas's home, he had taken possession of two iron bars, one long one near the fireplace and a smaller one that had been hidden in the bedroom. Dr Yule, on handing down his decision, said that there was no question as to the manner of death. The medical evidence was conclusive and there was nothing which would mitigate the strong evidence against the prisoner. Lucas was not under the influence of alcohol and was perfectly cool and collected. Drunkenness was no excuse for criminality and there was no question of his sanity. Dr Yule instructed the jury that there was no other recourse than to return a verdict of willful murder against Luke Lucas. The jury returned with that verdict in just a few minutes. Now, the trial took place in the Supreme Court in Melbourne on the 17th of November, 1854, before the acting Chief Justice, Sir Redmond Barry, and a jury of 12 men. Sir Redmond Barry would, of course, later become known as the Hanging Judge. 
The court was densely packed and although a most solemn silence prevailed throughout the trial. Lucas was described as a middle-aged man of low and thick-set build with sensual countenances and small sunken eyes with a compression of lips that showed a fixed determination of purpose. Not the most favourable description, I think you will sure you will agree. Uh, Lucas was undefended by counsel. However, Mr Reid offered to act as attorney with Mr Dawson as counsel. There was a little extra information that came out of the trial that had not been testified to at the inquest. Margaret Matthews again testified that her house was owned by Elizabeth Wilson, who had been there on the morning of the murder, but she didn't know where she was at the time of the murder. Constable Richard Smith would testify that the house was not one of a respectable character. John Lewis, who Lucas had called in to see Mary on the floor, further testified that he had raised Mary's head and commented to Lucas that he could see her brains coming out and that he was an unfortunate man. Lewis, with another man, had lifted Mary onto a sofa. Luke and Mary's son, called Billy, in the papers of the day, displayed a deplorable spectacle of neglect, as it was described in the newspaper accounts. They were horrified that Billy had not been taught to pray, knew nothing of the existence of God, but did know that he would be punished if he told a lie. However, he did not know if that was punishment was before or after death. Billy cried throughout his testimony to the court, which was painful to all who witnessed it, except for his father, who maintained a morose and sullen look about him. Judge Barry took his time summing up and explaining the difference to the jury between murder and manslaughter. The jury took 90 minutes before returning with a verdict of willful murder with a recommendation to mercy on account of great provocation. Lucas's counsel then argued that the recommendation for mercy negated the verdict of murder and that it should have been manslaughter. The jury explained that the only provocation was the debauched life that Mary had led and Mr Dawson withdrew his objections. For a fascinating look at life in a colonial prison, visit Geelong Jail Museum. Situated just over an hour from Melbourne in the heart of Geelong, it's Victoria's most intact and longest continually operating colonial prison. For information, search for Geelong Jail or call 1300 865 800. The court was fully packed again the following day to hear the sentence handed down by the Acting Chief Justice, Sir Redmond Barry. The crier proclaimed strict silence under the pain of imprisonment. Sir Redmond Barry had deferred on passing sentence the previous day so that he could once again go through the evidence as the jury had recommended mercy. He felt he could not add his own recommendation of mercy when it was sent to the Executive Council for review before the sentence would be carried out. Barry censured Lucas on the way and the conditions in which he had brought up his children, that if he, perhaps if he had brought up Billy as a witness to the paths of morality and virtue, that his evidence would have been received and may have been how Lucas was able to save his life. Sir Edmund Barry then read his sentence. Luke Lucas, you have been convicted by a jury of your countrymen of the willful murder of your wife Mary Lucas, and the short, consistent and uncontradictory testimony upon which that verdict was founded leaves no doubt whatever of your guilt. You yielded to an outburst of passion and cruelty, and in the very midst of this populous city at nearly midday, with a bar of iron, you murdered your wife. Had but you raised your hand against your equal in strength, it might have shown, at any rate, some degree of courage. An act like that would have thrilled us with less horror. But you raised your hand to slay your partner in life with whom you were bound by all ties to love and cherish and protect. 
And what can be said in extenuation of your crime? A crime committed by a man upon a woman, a husband upon a wife, a father upon the mother of his children. The learned counsel, Mr Dawson, who volunteered your defence, has ably advocated you. He has tried in all his power to see if the witness for the Crown was speaking the language of truth, but the few and simple details showed there was no contradiction. He tried to reduce the crime to manslaughter, but failed. That little child of yours, eight years of age, brought forward by your counsel to give evidence in your favour, might have benefited you much, but, by your own culpable negligence, he had been deprived of giving that evidence that might possibly have saved his father. Let this hold up in strong light to all, especially to men in your class of life, the necessity of religious instruction, if not from the high and holy motives of religion, let it be for the welfare of the children themselves, lest when their own life and welfare and liberty should be at stake, instead of their young children being the artless advocates of truth, possibly to save them in that hour, they find themselves the speedy avengers of evil. Let this case be set before and terrify all who are given to habits in intemperance. The last crime of murder has sprung from the first crime of intemperance. To this vice, a wife now owes her murder, a husband a speedy and retributive death, and these young children left in ignorance and vice, possibly to want and suffering. If no other mode of reasoning will avail with the intemperate, let this terrify the drunkard, that the fate of Luke Lucas may one day be his, that the thirst for drink is the demon that urges them to inevitable ruin. The recommendation of the jury for mercy shall be duly forwarded to the Executive Council, but I can hold out to you no hope. I cannot interfere in this case, neither do I feel called to do so. I would not pass upon you the sentence of death hastily. Therefore, I have submitted the whole of your case to a most painful retrospect. I feel and respect the opinion of the jury because it yields to mercy. My opinion also is entitled to respect, and I believe yours is a case that demands a public example. How dare you aggregate to yourself the office of an avenger to deal out such unproportionate retribution to a wife? Prepare then for a death not so sudden, not so severe, not so terrible as you have inflicted. Prepare, I say, to stand at the bar where all of us shall meet our doom. The sentence of this court is that you, Luke Lucas, be taken from the place from whence you came and from thence to the place of execution, at such time as His Excellency, the Lieutenant Governor, may appoint, and there be hanged by the neck until you be dead. And may the Lord God, in His infinite compassion, have mercy on your guilty soul. The judge was deeply affected delivering his address, so much so that at times he became inaudible and had to wipe tears from his cheeks. Luke Lucas showed no such emotion, and he was removed from the docks back to the Melbourne jail to await his execution. The execution was set down for the 24th of November, 1854, at 8am. Lucas had spent his time since sentencing in conversations with the Reverend Mr Stoddart, paying great attention to his instructions. It was reported that Luke blamed Mary for his current position, that it was due to the disgraceful conduct of a profligate and abandoned wife. Luke showed more feeling for his children, weeping bitterly that his actions would leave them as orphans. It was raining heavily as Luke was led to the gallows in front of a small crowd. He attempted to say something as if to say goodbye to the officers of the jail who were standing in the yard, but his emotions overcame him and the words were unintelligible. Within a few minutes of his appearance in the yard, Luke Lucas was dead.
Both Mary and Luke were buried in the new cemetery in Melbourne, today known as the Melbourne General Cemetery, on the 9th of November and the 24th of November, respectively. The three children, orphaned by the events of November 1854, were unable to be taken care of by their aunt and uncle, who were said to be good, upstanding people, but they just did not have the financial resources to take on three children. Acting coroner Richard Yule intervened and found places for the children in the Benevolent Asylum in Victoria Street. While we don't know what happened in the intervening years, we do know that at least two of them, Benjamin, or Billy, and Harriet, grew into adulthood and went on to have their own families. Unfortunately, there is no trace of what happened to Anne Lucas, who was just 12 years old at the time of her mother's murder and her father's execution. Interested in learning more about this episode? Join the Locked Up With History Facebook group for more facts and discussions about the dark colonial past of Victoria and beyond. Now, on our next episode, we'll be returning to the Geelong Jail and one of the most infamous escapes in the jail's history, the escape of Frederick Dross Clark and Christopher Christy Farrell in 1889. Now, these two old men experienced some of the worst locations that men could experience as convicts in Australia, and their stories are as interesting as the escape. But before we go today, as always, don't forget to check out our webpage at lockedupwithhistory.com.au, where all the previous episodes are, along with any of the photos we have for each of the episodes where we have them. All of the episodes are also available to listen on your favourite podcast streaming platform. If you want to ask me any questions or discuss anything about any of the previous episodes or anything else to do with the jail or history, really, uh, you can leave a post for us in our Facebook group, Locked Up With History. And if you have a suggestion on a story you might like to hear on a future podcast, please feel free to send us a message either in the group or by one of the emails, and we most certainly will consider it. But until then, see you on the darker side of history. information on the story from today's episode check out the show notes or join the locked up with history facebook group remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts